is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 223, Multi-Engine Safety and Listener Mail, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. We have a special edition here. Uh, we're talking about multi-engine safety, but we're also talking to uh, some folks through our mail. Instead of uh, live, we actually have people write in, and also you can actually uh, record uh, your message if you call us. So don't forget to do that on the website and the contact page. Uh, we really do appreciate everything you do and all the different uh, mail that does come in. And we haven't been really good about answering some of them, or I should say reading them out loud on here, but we're definitely going to do more of that. Well, joining me this evening actually is uh, two people that uh, on uh, different parts of the country and it's Russ Wozleski who's out there in the middle of the country which is now actually I think going through quite some uh, thunderstorms or have they passed already? Uh, not here. It's been beautiful. It's high as 70 today here in Oklahoma and just a beautiful gorgeous day. Yeah. So of course it. I did not fly today naturally right? <laughs> <laughs> it always yes. works that way, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, also joining us is uh, Victoria Nouvelle up there in the uh, northeast, or I guess you should say mid-Atlantic states. Welcome. Hello, hello. It's uh, it's good to hear your voice, and I know you've been doing some flying and having some challenges, uh, and uh, just trying to get, we were just talking about weather, is getting the weather to cooperate, because I think you were supposed to go fly today, weren't you? Yeah, I was supposed to have my CFI check ride yesterday and had to make the go, no go decision at 530 in the morning because you're not supposed to start a check ride if you don't think you can fully complete it. So, um, and it turns out as bummed as I was and kind of wanted to just see if we could make it, it was a very good decision to, uh, not because the clouds stayed 1500 overcast and pouring rain for the remainder of the day, even though it was predicted to get better. So, so on the CFI ride, isn't that the one where the, the oral exam seems to be a lot tougher than the actual flying? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's um, my friend had an eight hour long oral exam. Wow, that's really now long. granted the DPE. And him both love to talk. So <laughs> for me, I'm like, less is more. Let's get this done. So, but I guess the average is about five hours. Wow. And around here. Now, did you, now let me understand. Did you get to do the oral portion or did you have to call the no, whole? No, okay. I couldn't even do just the oral because um, it's kind of, they look at it as your decision making too. So I had to decide right then and there, you know, is, can I complete this check ride? And, you know, I'd have to pay more money if he had to come back and divide it into two. So I just made the decision that 
I knew we weren't going to be able to get to the flying part, so we just canceled the whole thing. Well, hats off to the examiner, by the way, for doing that, because some of them will, you know, I know you get charged more on the second time around, and, uh, you know, you do have to pay a little bit extra, and uh, I'm glad he did that to save you some money, or her, did she did that to save you some money, so that's awesome. Uh, but hopefully we can't wait to uh, find out the year CFI. I'd, l- I'd love to come down and get some dual instruction, especially yeah. in, especially hey. in a tail wheel. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait for that. That's yeah. I'm learning to fly the decathlon from the back seat, which is interesting when there's a whole head blocking all of your instruments. So, so I just realized I don't have my tailwheel endorsement. I've been looking for it, and it's not in there. So maybe you could help me get that for for the official hey. tailwheel endorsement. And for those that are listening, no, I haven't flown illegally without a tailwheel endorsement. I just never got it done. And I was always uh, when I was doing all my aerobatic stuff, it was with a another instruction uh, or instructor in the plane. You know, when you start out, that kind of thing. So, um, but uh, but that would be really cool. That'd be fun, Victoria. So let's put it to a yeah. challenge. Let's do it. Uh huh. I'm in. <laughs> so uh, anyway, well, uh, appreciate both of you being here this evening this is gonna be a lot of fun uh but before we get started a quick word from our sponsor do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot air traffic controller mechanic or dispatcher or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating but you need help paying for it the aerospace scholarships guide at aviationcareerspodcast.com has over 50 million dollars in available scholarships many of these go unused because people don't apply for them for just ten dollars you'll receive a full year subscription to the guide which is updated monthly every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available more information is at aviationcareerspodcast.com well, thanks for that, uh, Larry. And also, one of the things that I want to mention is some of the folks that are out there say to us, hey, listen, how do we help sponsor the podcast? And uh, one of the things that we came up with, it's not on the website yet, is uh, one, one of the things I love to do is give back to the community. And I think a big part of that is the scholarships guide that we have that's available for everybody, not just people advancing in their careers, just like Larry said. But uh, one of the things I, I'd like to do is this, is that if you want to sponsor an episode, say you're a business or whatever, or we just want want to mention a name uh the way we're doing it is this if you purchase 10 scholarships guides uh we'll actually make you the sponsor of this podcast and or this episode and an episode so if you want to get the word out to thousands of people that are in the aviation industry you know every episode then this is this is a great way to do that it's also a great way to help other people because what we're going to do with that hundred dollars we're going to take that and through our pay it forward campaign which you can learn a little bit more about we're going to put out there 10 coupons for that Pay It Forward campaign, which is the equivalent of $100 of scholarships, guys. So it's going right back into the community, plus it's going to get your name out there. So uh, if you want to learn more, just email us uh, at contact at stuckmikeavcast.com. Now entering cruise flight. Anyway, speaking of mail, uh, we got a bunch of listener mail today, and I know we haven't been doing a great job at this, so please uh, start writing in more, both at stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com and contact at stuckmikeavcast.com. Both of those we, we respond to. I know we have the two email addresses. We set them up a long time ago, and uh, we really appreciate uh, what you have to say. But the first listener mail, uh, Russ, actually, uh, this was sent to you, so go ahead, Russ. That's right, Carl. So... Uh, this was sent to me on the Pilots of America Internet Forum uh, there, and it was user Sam D had this question. It was a really good question. It was based on our – well, I'll just read it. Here you go. Hi, Russ. I was listening to the latest Stuck Mike podcast, and you mentioned the domestic flight plan form going away. So obviously this is a, a couple uh, episodes ago. That got me thinking. When I initiate flight following, I always give the equipment suffix – 
with my type aircraft, uh, such as PA-32 Slant Golf. Aren't the ICAO suffixes different, and should we be switching to those when requesting flight following? I hadn't seen this discussed. Thanks to you and your team for the great podcast. Well, Sam, <laughs> I was able to to look a little bit into this as far as I could. I asked uh, a couple folks who work in air traffic control, and they were both at uh, two different uh, approach controls. So uh, their answer was was actually kind of surprising to me because we we have been doing this. We put us on our uh, FA, you know, formed the VFR flight plans. You put your equipment code. You know, it's just been a part of flying, and I was kind of surprised by their answers, which were this. Uh, the one guy said, uh, for VFR flight following in terminal airspace, we don't care about your suffix. <laughs> the computer assigned you Tango, and we go on. Uh, you tell us you're a Skyhawk slant G, we only type in C-172. Uh, the other uh, controller from, again, a different facility responded basically the same. He said, as far as a VFR pop-up for flight following, we don't put equipment type in. The computer automatically puts in slant T. We can put in the system the equipment type, but to us here at least, it doesn't really matter. And and so I found that really interesting because we've had you know this whole you know decades of putting in this equipment suffix, but you know really from an air traffic control perspective, you think about it, it's pretty accurate. I mean, it doesn't. I can't see how it would really matter for most uses, uh, emergency situation maybe, but for most VFR flight following and radar services, they probably just assume that everybody's got some kind of a GPS on board, you know, tablet or something that if you're VFR, you can use to navigate just fine. So uh, at least in the, the couple of examples I have here, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can tell them whatever they want. Now, I did think uh, slant T was interesting because uh, slant T on the FAA form was – uh, transponder no mode C. So it's been a long time since we've, we've really had to worry about you know people not having mode C on their transponder. And in the uh, ICAO flight plan world, it's uh, for TACAN equipped. Of course, not too many general aviation aircraft with TACANs either. So it it must be. I'm kind of making a theory here. It's just a code that they didn't really ever use for anything else. So the computer assigns it automatically if they don't know the code. So, so I thought the the answers were interesting, and uh, well, there you go. Thanks, uh, thanks, Sam, for for writing that in. That was an excellent question. So it just doesn't matter, is what we're uh, we're hearing here. So uh, it's, it sounds like it's a placeholder. Yeah, uh, apparently not. <laughs> so I guess where it's going to matter is when you go ahead and file a flight plan. Say you uh, you need a, a IFR flight plan, a little short range, get back in. Then then they'll start asking for those. Uh, yeah, now IFR would matter, of course. Yeah, yeah. yes. But not not for VFR, and, and that makes sense. Oh sure, sure. So so make sure you know it for when you actually have to file that that VFR flight plan, or excuse me, that IFR flight plan when you're trying to get down uh, below the clouds. Obviously, you have an instrument rating and you're equipped, etc. Really cool. That was awesome uh, question. That was a great answer, Russ. I really appreciate that. So one of one of the things that uh, we do love is is answering those questions. Also, the other thing we love is the fact that you're truly inspired by uh, the podcasts and in general in the podcasting world. We love the f- all the different podcasts out there, and and we'd love to hear feedback. And this next email came in, and it's from somebody uh, who sent. Now, remember, this email was sent out to multiple co- uh, podcasts and list to many listens to many of them. So she uh, she just wanted to to reach out to everybody, and I thought it was kind of cool how she did this. So you might hear this email on some other podcasts. So let me go ahead and start. Um, she writes, "I'm an active duty soldier working in Army aviation and transitioning to civilian life." 
For as long as I can remember, I've had a strong interest in flying. I've always been drawn to aviation in general. Until recently, I continue to put off my pursuit of aviation for financial reasons or whatever other excuses I had at the time. I enlisted as a rotorcraft mechanic, hoping to at least get some form of a fix. It's been great. I wanted more, but still had too many excuses. I was deployed for a while, and I didn't have much to do in my off time other than listen to podcasts or watch movies. So I thought I'd take a look and find all the aviation-related podcasts and at least learn a few things. Needless to say, in my time there, I managed to listen to and catch up on nearly every episode of about 35 podcasts. It's amazing how quickly you can get through content when you listen at double speed while working 12-hour shifts. I have more notes written in my notebooks than I know what to do with. When I returned stateside, I got my first class medical and enrolled in a flight training program. I'm also beginning my airframe and power plant certificate next week as part of my exit program from active duty. I couldn't be happier. 12 years since my first flight, and I'm finally pursuing my goals. 29 feels like a late start, but so long as I can fly, you'll never see me without a smile on my face again. The scholarships guide, the countless episode of pointers, the stories from other pilots, advice on ways to accomplish flight training, the different ways to build time, recommended products or strategies, and the encouraging words from all the podcasters out there have been an invaluable resource. I'm not entirely sure which route I want to take with my career. I have made it my goal to get through all my ratings and give back to the community at the very least. If I can just influence one person the way all of you influenced me, whatever I do in aviation will be worth it. Thank you all so much for everything you put into the community. You'll really lit a fire under me. Keep putting out that amazing content. Well, gosh, we really appreciate that. And I don't know about you guys, but that really, uh, the hair stood up on the back of my neck when I heard that, to realize that, yeah, we are making a difference. All these podcasters out there are making a difference in, in people's like life. And uh, I know, you know, sometimes when we're work, working hard and thinking, is this making a difference, whether we're working on our CFI or working hours behind a desk, et cetera, um, realizing that this, what we're doing here is making a difference in people's lives. And that's terrific. So thanks so much for that email. I really appreciate that. Um, and and I'm, one of the things I want to say, too, is that if you have a, a story or something like that, some encouraging story for someone who's struggling through, say, one of their ratings or can't figure out how to pay for it, et cetera, maybe you can write in and give some examples because I think that's one of the things that helps other people is realize it's not just us here talking. It's you, the listener, that is encouraging others. And when you send in those emails, it just like this one here, it really does does help. And, uh, and we really appreciate this listener. We appreciate your service, and, uh, and we hope you'll keep listening and, and keep learning. So uh, that's actually uh, what this episode is about, is, is learning and, uh, and obviously living and loving to fly. But uh, we're going to try to learn a few things, uh, issues they've had with airplanes. Uh, remember we talked about one episode where I had uh, smoke in the cockpit because of uh, an oil leak. Uh, actually, uh, I wouldn't really call it a leak. Yeah, I guess it was a leak, but it was a detached <laughs> return line in the engine. Well, Interestingly enough, and obviously this this wasn't staged or anything, that Russ actually had uh, kind of an, an oil problem. So, Russ, tell us a little bit about uh, about what happened and and what the result was. Well, yes, Carl. So this was a, f- a few weeks ago, and 
I've recently been flying a cabin class twin for the owners. This is a turbocharged pressurized, uh, you know, cabin class twin. So, uh, I was, I was taken off to actually go pick them up from somewhere. They were out at, at the location and I was going to fly out there to pick them up, and bring them take off. Everything was normal. Um, I, I was going to climb up to about 11,000 for this flight and uh, I'm on climb out. It's going okay. As I start to get up there, I've been climbing a little while now. I look out at the left engine, and there's oil that's uh, running back from, you know, from underneath the cowling. Uh, now we've had a problem with, with high, kind of ex- not excessively high oil consumption, but a little higher than we'd like on that engine. Uh, and we've had a little bit of problem, maybe with it kind of weeping out and you know, kind of marking its territory. You know, you might say when it's on the ground. So, so first, it really didn't seem that unusual it, at first. It did, but as I keep watching, I, mean, I could literally see oil, you know, blobs of oil flowing from underneath the cowling. Um, so, so that that kind of said that eh, it's maybe not a great idea <laughs> to keep flying. Uh, so at about eleven thousand, uh, I was up. Th- I'd gotten up there by that time, and I decided to turn around and abort the flight and return to home. Uh, but what I thought was really interesting, and you know, we study this in in pilot training and uh, in instructor training and in other fields uh, of uh, you know knowledge i guess about how people react to different situations and as uh, watching this oil coming i in a very quick period of time of course i had to like the full range of i mean you know denial and rationalization and maybe i can make it and you know maybe it's not really that bad or maybe, you know, I, I'm coming up with all kinds of weird things here in just a few seconds. Maybe, you know, there was some spilled oil under the cowling that, you know, is leaking out now and it, it's really okay. And, and then I, of course I run through these, these scenarios real quick. And at one point there was a voice inside my head and it was my voice. And it said, Russ, you're being an idiot. <laughs> just turn around and go back. So of course I did. And that was obviously the, the right move there. But just the whole the whole mental process of you know we we hear about this stuff and we think oh you know everybody else is you know, doesn't know what they're doing I'm the only one who knows who knows how to fly an airplane and you know why would you even you know try to do something silly well for me you know all these different stages of decision making pass in a very short amount of time you know just a few seconds but they were definitely noticeable and, and they were obvious to me when I when I thought back on it later. And, and that struck me as really kind of fascinating because I am one of the type of guys, like a lot of our listeners, who go in and we read accident reports and you know, we, we kind of study these things and we're always trying to think of what we would do. And having these thoughts you know, instantly in my mind was, was pretty interesting from a kind of a study of human behavior standpoint. Uh, so, yeah, so I told myself I'm being an idiot, turn around and I go back, and I did. Uh, so I, I told ATC, you know, hey, I need to, re- need to return to home. And... The engine was running fine, uh, so I didn't shut it down at any time. But I did watch the temperatures, uh, but I, I made it back uh, you know, safe and had a had a normal landing. So, uh, go ahead. No one one question I have though is that you were talking about. Uh, I, I love that discussion you had with yourself, where finally you said, "Hey, you know, I'm being an idiot. Stop this." Um, you know, one of the things I think sometimes we do is we deny something's happening, and and you know maybe if it if I don't look at it, it'll go away. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of it's seemed- well, right. I, you know, <laughs> no kidding, Carl. That, that was in there. You know, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's you know just some temporary thing, right? And it'll fix itself. Oh, sure, sure. Why not, right? 
So, so tell us if you're if you can tell us what actually happened. Why was there oil coming out, and and was it truly something that bad, or did it look worse than it was? Well, oil always looks worse, so uh, that it was you know easily findable, and they replace the oil cooler. So, uh, it, you know, how long would it have taken to drain the engine of oil? You know, obviously, I have no idea, but I you know, didn't really want to find out. Uh, so, actually, a question I was asked, uh, you know, as I was telling some friends and such about this, was, you know, I, I didn't go to the nearest airport. Okay, and they asked, well, why didn't I go to the nearest airport? Um, well. It wasn't the nearest in terms of miles away that I went. To. I, I returned home, but when when you're at a, you know, a significant altitude, you have the time factor to deal with, right? So I'm at eleven thousand. So to descend at a normal rate, unless I wanted to do some kind of emergency descent, I mean it's going to take you know ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen minutes to descend back down. So in that amount of time, I could sit there and you know spiral, or I could just point the airplane straight home and make it in about the same amount of time. Uh, obviously, if it, it had been engine fire or something, it would have been a totally different scenario, but there was no indications of anything like that. Uh, in fact, I had been climbing into a headwind, so I was you know, closer to home. <laughs> it, you know, I didn't get very far in my climb, and in the descent, you know, I'm screaming down. It, I actually could have flown well past my, my, uh, my takeoff point uh, easily. So, so you got to f- consider this time factor as well. And I know uh, you as an airline pilot and a lot of other folks, you know, do that. You don't necessarily just spiral down to the airport right beneath you. In fact, there was, there was one um, a couple years ago, and I, I forget where it was, but it was on an airliner. And it ended up diverting to someplace that was, you know, 100 miles away or something. Because, well, in terms of time, it was just as close as anything else. So just keep that in mind as, as, you're, as you're flying around if you do have problems. That the time factor is, is also a consideration. Well, it's not always that, too, but, like, where, if you were just to land at the closest airport and it's not a huge emergency, are you landing at an airport that actually has the capability to fix your problem? So, I think you going back to home base actually makes a whole lot of sense because you know that's where the aircraft gets its maintenance done and things like that versus the airport right below you might be in the middle of who knows where and not have a mechanic on field. So you would have just landed. You could have checked on it and see what was happening, but you might not be able to fix the problem. And as a consideration, the other factor in addition to that, which kind of goes right along with the availability of maintenance, is the availability of any kind of a uh, emergency response. Uh, now, the airport I was flying out of, they don't have a fire department or anything, but at least they have an FBO that's open. Uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you have a problem and you land at you know some airport that has nothing maybe nobody even around nobody's going to know you're there if, if you have a problem on landing so uh, it, it's very situational dependent and these are the kinds of things you really need to run through in your head really before you go you know if as you're looking at your route of flight seeing you know, okay what airports does it go over is it am i crossing over the desert with nothing and I, i'm just gonna have to take the nearest airport i can or if i have a problem and there's 50 airports underneath me you know tower that that's usually a good bet if you don't know anything else other than that. Go to the Class D airport. So uh, it is a it is definitely a consideration, something to keep in mind. Yeah. 
The other uh, consideration, too, I think, is, you know, you know the airport. You don't have all the notams for the one right below you if, if you're not on fire. Uh, in reality, this was kind of like a situation where it was more like an abnormal than an emergency, you know, something that wasn't wasn't quite cor- correct. And it's a, it was kind of more of a precautionary type landing. Um, you know, interesting, I just actually went through all my training uh, at the airline this weekend uh, and did a lot of emergency procedures and everything like that. But this kind of brings up this point that we discussed this weekend is that, yeah, there's there's certain times where you may have an emergency which turns into emergency. Hey, we're canceling the emergency. Well, that's because they fixed the problem and they, they could continue on. And it kind of sounds strange, but it's actually something we discuss quite often. And uh, we different we use different codes when we're communicating with, say, the folks in the cabin with the flight attendants saying is we're, we're code yellow or code red, red being really bad, yellow is precautionary. And and that can happen in this case. So, for instance, you're doing a precautionary turn back to the airport. If that turned into a fire, then that's a different story and a different scenario where you need to get down as quick as possible. And that may have been better for you to do the emergency descent. But then... Uh, throw in the other what if you shut the engine down that may be better to continue on to the because of what what you just said so with all that said uh, i'm kind of curious now you know that you've had you had this issue it didn't seem like a, it was overly urgent and i think maybe part of that um is first of all your training obviously but also the fact that you had two of these engines hanging out there so if you just had the one um, maybe the heart rate would have been up a little bit higher knowing that you know at least you have another one so so was that kind of going through your mind i was kind of wondering the fact that hey you know at least i have another one well sure uh, and i guess the the other benefit there is the oil's leaking back you know all- out on the wing, not onto the windshield. So uh, there's that that benefit. If you have a single engine that, well, the oil's coming right back at you, it might cause a visibility problem. But uh, yeah, you know, hey, if I need to shut it down, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, but but you're right, there, there was no fire or anything like that. So I, I didn't declare an emergency on this one. We'll, we'll talk about what happened a week later here in a minute. But uh, I, I did tell ATC, hey, I need to return. And of course, they asked why. And I said, you know, something, I, I don't know, possible mechanical issue or something like that. Uh, but yeah, there it was. It was abnormal, uh, and it had the potential to become an emergency, of course. But uh, fortunately, it never never rose to that level. So, Russ, I don't want people to get nervous thinking that uh, you know this podcast is going to turn into the emergency podcast because it sounds like we're about to go into another emergency that one of our our co-hosts had. So, so no, we, we it's just this is just a coincidence, right? Uh, that this is happening. But uh, so, please tell us, you know, what happened in the next the following week uh, uh, as far as the emergency. Well, okay, so so they fixed the oil cooler. You know that that was a, a pretty obvious problem, and they fixed it. So, about a week later, yeah, I wanted to take it up for a maintenance test flight, and and so I did. I wanted to make sure the oil got you know nice and hot, and we didn't see any evidence of it flowing out anywhere. Uh, so I took it all the way up to flight level two zero zero. That. <laughs> That's about as high as we normally cruise in this airplane. So yeah, I wanted to kind of explore the whole range of whatever. whatever. Okay, so I got up there. I leveled off, went in the cruise, um, and left. And I looked at manifold pressure. And this is a turbocharged airplane, of course. Uh, I'd been at about 32 inches of manifold pressure. Uh, 
and then it had dropped to about 15 inches on the left engine. So that's a pretty significant difference, you know, 17 inches of manifold pressure. And it was a big yaw, just like, I mean, just exactly like in training, you know, the book, uh, the book answer for everything, except for no instructor had reached over and pulled the throttle back. Right. So, so I got the, the yaw and I just, you know, I'm up at 20,000 feet. Right. So I've got lots of time. There was nothing that really required immediate action other than maintaining aircraft control. Uh, and then I was able to, to take a second and kind of work it out. Uh, when it, when it did that, when the left engine went out, the pressurization system didn't quite you know keep up. It's supposed to be able to run independently off either engine, but it didn't quite keep up. And this is something that I really tested. I'd have to look in the book to see if there's a good way to do that. But uh, so the, the cabin altitude shot up above 10,000. I got the warning lights on, on pressure, you know, pressurization system and cabin altitude. So, so I had a, you know, some kind of a significant engine problem and a pressurization issue too. So in that case, there, there was no mental debate. <laughs> there was no, maybe this will fix itself. Maybe it'll work better. You know, maybe it's not as bad as I think. So I immediately called ATC, declared an emergency. I'm, you know, beginning in a descent. And uh, again, I wasn't very far from home because it was just a maintenance flight. So I headed back there, uh, got the, did uh, a little bit of an emergency descent, got the, the altitude down there. Um, and returned to home. Uh, the engine actually, for kind of unexplained reasons, at least to me, uh, seemed to start running okay again <laughs> as, as I descended. And uh, so I was able to, I didn't have to shut it down. I did a, a pretty normal landing at, at that point. Uh, that one, uh, when the mechanic got in there, it turned out has a, uh, some kind of uh, loose intake clamp. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know all the, the ramifications thereof, but uh, it was in the intake system, which had caused that problem. So uh, it was it was two totally unrelated things has happened in two subsequent flights, and uh, but they all turned out okay. Uh, the as soon as I declared emergency, I mean I was up at like <laughs> just me and you know four hours of gas or something, and uh, and immediately had no problem getting me back home, and then. Uh, uh, approach control. Once I got down, they asked me the same, same questions and uh, I landed safely. They did ask me to let them know when I was safely on the ground, uh, cause it's an untowered field. So fortunately we do have a clearance delivery, uh, frequency there on the ground that we can use. And I let them know, uh, the question that's, that's always asked is if I declare an emergency, you know, uh, is it going to be lots of paperwork? And the answer is always not usually. And in my case, it was no. I mean, nobody has followed up on this, of course, until this podcast go out maybe, but, uh, but there has been no questions from the FAA or ATC or anything like that. So, um, so it's, it's been a pretty much a non-event. So you actually, let the emergency, you descended. Now, did you, were you continually in emergency or did you cancel it or did you wait till you get on the ground? I just waited till I was on the ground. I didn't really know exactly what was going to happen from that point. So I figured there's, there's nothing in this case. I mean, it was a maintenance test flight, right? So I was going to be going back and landing anyway. In fact, I was just about to return anyway because I accomplished what I needed to do. So there was no downside to just you know, leaving the emergency, I guess, in, in effect, I guess you'd say. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, I made my radio calls in the pattern and uh, you know, I, I let other traffic know that I was an emergency just in case someone wanted to pull out on the runway or something like that. And, uh, yeah, there was one guy who he, he did a little delay and, you know, let me in. It was, it was no big deal. So it worked out real well. And, um, and that was the end of it. I'm kind of curious on going back to the yaw. I mean, what, uh, you know, kind of describe that a little bit more. Was it, was it like 
five degrees, 10 degrees, a whole bunch, you know, I was like, wow, I'm looking out the side of the window, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it was a significant y'all, but it was pretty much like anybody who's gone through multi-engine training is used to, you know, the, the instructor pulls the engine to idle and the plane yaws, you know, you know, 20 degrees and you catch it and whatever. And it, and you're back to straight and level. So, I mean, it was something like that. It was, it was not you know, staring at the ground out the window or anything like that. Um, it, yeah, it was literally just just like training. So, you know, one thing I think we're going to probably talk about a little bit later is training for these kind of things. And well, that's you do with what you go with what you know, and you revert to your training, and that that happened. The thing I, like I mentioned before, I didn't really have to be too concerned about was if you have an engine failure on takeoff, it's a whole different scenario. You're close to ground, you're in a you know high drag configuration, lots of different scenarios. But up here at, at cruise. You got a little time. You got a little time to think. As long as you maintain aircraft control, you're you're going to be okay. That's the most important thing, right? An emergency first thing is maintain aircraft control. Uh, yep. So, and good job, hats off to you on that one. Uh, again, goes back to the training. Uh, I guess my question is: Are you, are you going to go fly this plane now again? <laughs> After I'm, a little gun, these- <laughs> I'm a little gun shy. No, actually, I have flown it since then, and it's fine now. Yeah. Okay, good. Is it, but it doesn't that go through your mind? I mean, I know it did for me. You know, after any airplane I've had emergency landing with, it's it's like afterwards, do I really want to? You lose confidence in the airplane a little bit, right? Sure. And uh, and I had that. You know, I I used to own a Warrior, and I had to, you know every time I'd have a couple problems with that, the next ten hours or something of flying it, you're listening for every little engine noise or whatever, and. Yeah, you know, this airplane had never had a problem before this, and hopefully we'll not have a problem again. But yeah, these next few flights in it, I'm going to be uh, paying extra attention to everything. Yeah, especially after a maintenance flight. By the way, that's uh, we just had uh, someone go down in the field last week here, uh, and not too far from us, and they same thing. He was just taking a plane back from maintenance, and sure enough, something went wrong, and uh, not sure what it was, but uh, and then you know, had to land in a fear. You're the most cautious right after maintenance. Well, uh, sometimes maybe we should always be that cautious, especially on takeoff, obviously, and, and landing. But being up at altitude is a little bit, a lot more, you know, different, uh, shall I say, options, except like obviously if we're burning. But, uh, but you know, Russ, you alluded to this is, you know, we do want to talk a little bit about you know, multi-engine aircraft, because we, you know, I had a problem the other week with a single engine. Obviously, this person that went down the field was in a single engine aircraft, the 172. And I think I want to kind of start that discussion and get some viewpoint from, you know, you, Russ, flying a lot, and also Victoria, also from the, I guess, from an insurance standpoint, because they, the actuaries, uh, they know, the actuaries know exactly what we're talking about statistics-wise, but are twins safer than single-engine aircraft? I mean, that's kind of the question that fresh on this. I mean, what what is your opinion on that statement? Do you think twins are safer than single-engine aircraft? Well, when I was learning to be a flight instructor, my instructor said there are only two things you need to know how to say to be a good instructor. One is more right rudder. I think everybody out there will agree with that. And the other one was it depends. And this is <laughs> this is a great example of where the answer to that depends. Are, are twins safer than singles? They can be. Uh, are they more dangerous than singles? They can be. Uh, it's all a matter of uh, how you're flying it, what your training is, and and to a large degree, uh, where and what the problem is and where it happens. So I love that answer. It depends because one of the things we find in the accidents for
is, you know, multi-engine accidents uh, may only be about 7% of the actual accidents out there. Uh, but as far as the number of fatalities, it, it goes much higher than it goes to 11%. So what does that mean from a, a statistics a viewpoint? The fatality, in, or I guess you should say the lethality of an accident, meaning people actually uh, dying in an accident with a twin is much higher. It's at 24%. Uh, which is really high for uh, for all multi-engine aircraft compared to say like a single-engine retractable is about 22 percent. So you're just you're you're high. And uh, as far as single-engine fixed gear lethalities is 13 percent. Now remember this is all accidents. So you know in a twin-engine aircraft. Uh, there is a higher percentage of people that are, are killed because of that uh, accident. Now, with all that said, what he just said, it depends. A lot of it has to do with training. And, you know, becoming... I think one of the things we need to do is really stress becoming like a, a proficient pilot, but a proficient multi-engine pilot, which is totally different than a single-engine pilot. And that's where, you know, people are always asking me, you know, you're not you know, proficient single engine, but you fly multi-engine all the time. And I was like, yeah, because that's what I'm used to. And there's a, a different decision making process there. So, so how does one become a proficient multi-engine pilot? And I think uh, a lot of it now, Russ, are you a multi-instructor? I am. Yes. Okay. And so what, as far as the, you know, the multi-engine, there's, there's many different things that we look at uh, from a, uh, you know, the decision-making process than we do with a single engine. I think a big, a big example is, you know, when the engine fails in a single engine, it's very easy to figure out what to do because you're going to, you know, control the plane and glide but not so much in a twin engine. So uh, what are, you know, maybe you could help describe some of those things, uh, like in our decision-making process with a twin that we don't have with a single engine. Well, the main one is is takeoff. So that's the most dangerous scenario with with a multi-engine airplane, I guess. It's, you're, you're taking off. If you're in a single-engine airplane, and and we practice this, right? You, you get up to, well, at least to talk about it. You know, I guess you don't practice it too much. You get up to a couple hundred feet, right? And and the engine fails. Well, in a single engine, what are you doing? Well, you're going basically straight ahead with shallow turns uh, and you're landing in whatever you got, right? So that's your option. And and if if you're doing a, a good conscientious job of briefing your flight, you're going to talk you know, at least kind of run through your options and say, okay, I'm taking off from only one seven. And if I have an engine failure below, you know, whatever your number is, a hundred or a thousand feet, I'm going straight ahead above that, you know, do different options. So a little briefing like that. So, uh, you've, you've already set that, uh, and that that's all you got. Okay. So, but in a twin, well, if I do a little, uh, uh, pre takeoff mantra, I guess you'd call it where, or I, every time I repeat to myself exactly what's going to happen. And in the way I have, you know, everything I've read and the way I've been trained in the piston twin is if the landing gear is still down, regardless of what happens, I'm pulling the throttles to idle and taking whatever's in front of me. Uh, because there's a lot of drag with that landing gear down and cleaning it up and all that takes time. If the landing gear is up, so, and I'll bring it up pretty soon after takeoff, uh, if the landing gear is up, then that's where the the hard options come in because you may be able to climb away 
it will not likely in most light twins be exactly a, a very inspiring climb. Okay. It may, you're not going to get that, that exciting, normal performance. So you may, depending on the, the terrain and, and obstructions and such, even if the gears up, it may still be a better decision to just go ahead and, uh, and pull both rails to idle and accept what you can get. Uh, what we hope is that we can get that performance. Of course, hope is not exactly a plan, but, but we hope and we've studied beforehand that, to see if we can get that performance so that we can continue climbing out on one engine, heading straight ahead because any turn kills your, your climb rate, heading straight ahead to some kind of safe altitude and then reassess. Okay, And basically all of multi-engine training uh, for at least the multi-engine rating is about that your, your immediate actions to take and cleaning up the airplane and making sure you have maximum power and again maintaining aircraft control and how to uh, get the most performance you can so you can make that climb but the decisions really start back well at least you know, they should <laughs> in the pre-flight planning and then in the run-up area um, and i'm glad you said that because uh one of the things especially at the airlines we do is every single takeoff we do a briefing as far as what we're going to do where we're going to go and it's it's kind of a lengthy briefing it can be a kind of a sometimes it's a pain because on a, a clear day you know exactly what you do, you're going to do but it's always good to verbalize that you know where you're going to go and what the options are i love what you said there as far as you know everything depends it all depends on your situation uh i know i, I used to fly a twin off a uh, really short as i had no other options so there's those kind of decision making processes out there also some twins can climb on one engine depending on how your what your weights are etc and and as far as the gear coming up there's all these different things and then of course you know you were just talking about pressurization there's all those other systems too that come in place with a twin it becomes much more complex that's for sure um one of the things I was wondering, and I've never actually owned a, a multi-engine aircraft. And Victoria, if you can help me out a little bit on this. Uh, it, it's my assumption, and I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one, is that it costs more to, to insure, say, a, a multi-engine aircraft, say, the same value as it does uh, for a single engine. And I'm assuming because of a couple things, you know, obviously uh, there's some other systems in there that could be more costly to repair. But I'm, I'm thinking, too, possibly from the statistics, maybe the actuaries have looked at it and said, yeah, this is something we're going to have to pay a little bit more for to cover our risk. Um, is that kind of a true statement or a pretty close, Vic? I'm going to go with Russ's phrase, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but I like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, generally you're thinking kind of like if you go from a fixed gear aircraft to a retractable gear aircraft, okay, there's more likely to be more claims in the retractable gear aircraft, gear up, it's more expensive to repair, that type of stuff. Same point, going from just a retract to a multi-engine retract. you got two engines to repair now, um, plus, you know, the gear. Expensive planes, um, more complex aircraft. Um, and with all those things come more training, training, training. And that is all I'm hearing from underwriters right now is training. You cannot get by on some of these aircraft without proper training these days. Um Piper Cheyenne was doing an insurance quote on that today. Um, they used to be able to get away with doing an instrument proficiency check in that aircraft every year, these owners. Now the school, um, the underwriters are requiring formal school every year. So you have to take formal school every year for these type of aircraft that, you know, um, they 
have approved schools that have certain syllabuses, uh, syllabi that they want to see. Pressurized aircraft, certain multi-engine aircraft expect to be doing training annually. And um, whenever we're looking at statistics and higher rates, it's because, a lot of it's because of lack of training. And Russ, you, did you have to attend school? Uh, yeah, before I started flying this airplane, we talked about that we are two pilots and we brought in a, a guy to teach us how to fly it, basically. And it was a insurance-approved training course that, that he taught us. Absolutely. And it's several days. Usually it's about a three or three days for initial, maybe like two days for recurrent. So it is a big chunk of time um, out of your normal week that they put you through several hours of ground and several. Of course, uh, it would all depend on the school and the actual airplane, but yeah, that's the idea. How about simulators, uh, Victoria? Do they, uh, some of these schools approved and have simulators like the Cheyenne? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And depending on the aircraft, um, the Cheyenne, I'm not sure so much like a lot of it you can do in aircraft training, but a lot of underwriters want to see sim training because on the sims they can throw in, a lot of different emergencies that you can't simulate um, on, you know, like an engine failure on takeoff is kind of a dangerous thing to play around with um, in a real plane, but you can play around with it in a sim, some more dangerous uh, situations. So um, a lot of them require full motion sim and will not allow you to do in aircraft um, training to count as your formal training. And, um, the, the insurance market right now, the rates are increasing and people are getting very picky on who they'll insure and what type of pilots they'll insure in an aircraft. And every single one of them, I will emphasize again, is saying training, training, training. So interesting you said about the Cheyenne. Actually, uh, the building that we're in in the college here, I'm in Lakeland, Florida right now, is the old Cheyenne training facility for uh, flight safety. And my my friend used to teach there. And one thing he said to me, and I think this is kind of the theme that we're talking about, is this whole multi-engine flying. You're doing all single-engine stuff. Because we've gone over the systems, like you said, uh, the gear is up, and and all those kind of things, breaking the systems, et cetera. Uh, But the biggest thing is... What you what are you going to do when you have an engine failure? Uh, I think uh, the toughest thing is making those decisions, but making them before the flight. You know, what do we do? Uh, I liked Russ's analogy. You know, if the gear is still down, uh, we're going to bring it to idle and and then descend. There are certain airplanes you wouldn't do that in, uh, and there are certain airplanes that you could actually keep climbing, but you have to know that for this specific airplane that you're flying. Um, and that's what's super important about this. And I think that that's kind of what you're stressing is uh, Vic was insured on, say, a Cheyenne. You put him in a Baron. That's not necessarily going to be the same type of training, I'm assuming? No, nope, different school. Everything's, you know, in regards to the make and model aircraft that you're training in. So I wouldn't compare a Cheyenne to a King Air. Now, if you were stepping up from a, you know, one type of model of King Air to another, um, you can take the differences training. Uh, underwriters will allow that. So let's say you've got your your initial and your recurrent in a one type, um, and then the next model up has some differences. You don't have to retake all new school for that specific make and model. You can take some differences training that's just added on to it. So I've seen that done a lot, but... Uh, 
Yeah, you want to you want to see they want to see a certificate, you know, that you completed training within the past 12 months prior to flight if if you're insuring a lot of these multi-engine aircraft. And for those folks that don't know, the new listeners is uh, in, uh, Victoria works in that industry uh, in insurance and and we're allowed to say the company, right? It's aviation insurance professionals, right? Yep. And uh, resources. resources, excuse yep. me, resources and air-pros.com, is that right? Correct. Oh, Good job. All right. I've trained you, you well. You did. You did. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's interesting is that from my perspective, I I love insurance. I love actuaries, and I love all the, the the underwriters and the knowledge they have because they're the ones that you know put the flags up and say to me, "Hey, listen, I need to get some consistent training in in this aircraft." What I'm us and to our audience, I think, is how about like for instance, I've got a. I've got a Seneca, and then I'm going to go fly a Seminole, um, and I have like a whole bunch of hours in a Seneca and going to Seminole. Is there going to be much of a difference there in insurance? Is there going to be uh, another whole checkout? Obviously, you're going to have to get a checkout for the for the school, et cetera, but would I see a difference if I'm shopping for insurance? Yeah, it all depends on the aircraft, but if you have significant multi-engine time in a similar model, you're going to have a decent rate if you're just going to the next level up. But my goodness, you cannot believe how many people come in and the um, training requirements from the underwriter. So let's say you have tons of time in all these aircraft and the underwriter requires you to get two hours dual prior to solo in this new step-up model. Um, so many people do not want to go and get a checkout. Um, because they think, oh, I've got all this similar experience. And, you know, I agree with it to a point sometimes. Like if you're flying in a 150 and then going to 172, you probably don't need that much transition training or from a 172 to 182. But these larger aircraft, do you really want to step in a plane that you've never flown before and not have someone knowledgeable talk you through it first and just make sure everything's hunky-dory? Um, I don't like how often I see that. You know, I, I, that's a good analogy and also a good example, I should say. But I think even the 172, the 182, because it's a lot more power and uh, no matter what, I think you should get training in anything that's different. You know, look at a, a low wing and a high wing. There's there's different things there for the, all the different aircraft. So in general, uh, you know, I, I like to say that to the people that feel that they really don't need the training is, uh, you know, we're obviously doing this, you know, for you, and it's important because we want to make sure that, that you're a safer pilot. But just think about this. Even if you're someone who has a lot of experience, has a lot of multi-engine time, you definitely want to get out there and get training. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, I go out and get training in every twin that I'm new to. If it's a, it's like a Seneca 4 2, I'm, I'm going to be getting in with a pilot and flying lots of hours with them and say, hey, listen, you know, show me everything about this aircraft. And that I'm very, very cautious. And, you know, I have over 15,000 hours in twins, and that doesn't matter. I mean, I'm, I'm still going to be out there doing training because this is a totally new aircraft. Uh, and I think that's very important for us to be very conservative when we go out there. Uh, and listen to your insurance agent, because if your insurance agent's telling you that, it's usually precipitated by claims, which means that there are people that are breaking aircraft and crashing aircraft, and that's why they're requiring these things. Uh, and obviously, it's going to bring your rates down, which means that you're probably going to wind up seeing uh, a safer outcome because of the fact that you got more training. So stuff, uh, Victoria, interestingly, um, 
Uh, and and kind of one of the last things I want to talk about as far as the twin engine training is I think we have a lot of risks involved that we're unaware of. And I think, again, going back to the insurance industry, um, I, it's just fascinating how misinformed that I am uh, about multi-engines, and many of us are, uh, and some of the risks that we're not aware of. And I'll give you a great example of something that I was very ignorant about is I have a friend that works for the Coast Guard, and we keep in touch. And uh, I said to him, I said, listen, I don't like flying over water in a single-engine aircraft. I really don't do it much at all. And I would rather have a twin because I know if I lose the other engine that I'm going to make it to my my destination. Oh, no. He says, we, uh, we actually had to pull some people out of the water that had an engine failure and uh, or a problem with an engine, and it was a prop runaway, and uh, and that caused so much drag that they couldn't keep the airplane in the air and wound up having to ditch the aircraft, even in a twin-engine aircraft. And don't forget too that you could always run out of gas. So uh, he kind of learned me on that one. You know, I was like, you know what, you're right. Uh, it doesn't matter. Why do you think at the airlines we even have multi-engine aircraft flying over the water? We go over ditching procedures because of that. Uh, it's highly unlikely, but it can happen, and it has happened. That, that's for sure. Um, what are you know, Victoria? From your perspective, are there some other risks that maybe we don't know about from uh, from uh, in- engine? Uh, uh, as far as the aircraft is concerned, possibly other systems that might uh, be involved, maybe pressurizations, et cetera? Definitely. I just thought of a, a loss we had once that was due to, um, I'm assuming, uh, hypoxia. Uh, so think about when you get a multi-engine aircraft, why are you upgrading to a multi-engine aircraft? You probably want to go farther and faster, and therefore you can fly higher. So someone that's flying farther, you're going probably higher up. You could be going over a mountainous terrain. You're definitely going IFR. You could be going through worse weather than you normally would if, let's say, I was in my 172 hopping around the country. Granted, I can go far, but, you know, that multi-engine pilot is probably getting to take more risks and going to get into different um, scenarios than... A small airplane will. So you're going farther and longer, higher, IFR. That's just all adding up to you having to be on the top of your game. And yeah, pressurization is one of them too, where if you're flying a pressurized aircraft, that underwriter is going to make you go to school. And they want to see that that school syllabus has a um, pressurization emergencies uh, area that you simulate and go over. So, Russ, how about you? Do you think there's any other, uh, like, risks that I have even gone over that are unknown? Maybe uh, someone, hey, I'm going to get a twin because it's a lot safer than a, than a single engine. Uh, is there any other unknown risks that you know of just from all your experience flying twins? Uh, well, one of the risks I see, you know, as conducting training, and it's really just a pilot performance issue, I guess, is is in general, like, Vic said they're faster, right? So, so you've got that risk. You know, you've got faster speeds. You've got people getting behind the airplane. You've got, you have to think further ahead. I mean, you know, just in the airplane that I, I was talking about earlier, you know, I might, I might begin descending into the airport, I don't know, 70 miles away. You know, that's you when you're flying a 170 for the most part. So uh, you, know, you just need to be more ahead of the airplane. So and if you get behind, you know, then you end up rushing things and descending too fast and you enter in a pattern too fast. And then you're, you know, 
base to, you miss the base to final turn and you know it just kind of things can kind of snowball from there so that's one of the risks that we don't think of because it's actually one of the great benefits of course of a multi-engine and airplane so one of the things that I think we should all take away from this is the fact that uh, if you're thinking about a twin and you're thinking, you know, are twin engine aircraft going back to this? Are twins safer than single engine aircraft? Um, you know, it, and I loved the first answer, and, and both of you said this, is, is it really depends. It depends on your training. Uh, it depends on the situation. Uh, a lot of life, uh, obviously, is, is luck, but what we try to do is is match it up with, with aren't so lucky when the engine quits, et cetera, on takeoff. We're able to deal with those situations and uh, and be able to have a very safe and, and a happy outcome, meaning a safe outcome, and get home that night. And that's what's really, really important. So if if you're flying a twin right now, you're thinking about getting into a twin, uh, make sure you do a lot of training. By the way, there's some great books out there, and uh, there's one that's out there. It's called the uh, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical, uh, Air- their Airplane Flying Handbook, excuse me, uh, and that actually has some really cool stuff in there. And you know what? There's a whole chapter on multi-engine flying. It's called Transitioning to Multi-Engine Airplanes. I would I would love for you guys to go check it out. It's actually chapter 12 in that in that book, and it's really interesting stuff. We have just touched on the touch on the surface of all this and and it really really is cool another thing russ is is what what what's the greatest thing about multi-engine flying well it's just fun carl (laughs) you know you know (laughs) as much as you know it's it's great to go faster or whatever i mean everybody who's ever gotten a multi-engine rating just has a blast doing it i think because it is a lot of fun uh the first time that you shut the engine down yeah every instructor out there knows well we're going to shut the engine down, and then I'm going to have to take the controls for a minute so the, the, the student can get a picture, right? So everybody wants a picture of that engine shut down. <laughs> that would be me. And, and, and I, I have one, too, and I think everyone does. So, I mean, but it, the performance, I mean, oh, my goodness, the, the uh, maintenance check flight I did, it was just me on board. And, I mean, half tanks or something like that, that thing just climbed like a rocket. It was great. Um, so there, multi-engine training is a whole heck of a lot of fun. But uh, obviously, like we've been talking about this whole time, you know, a lot of uh, additional learning and training needs to go into it. But man, it's a blast. And a lot of part of the fun is the challenge and learning something new, learning something that we, uh, you know, stretching our knowledge that we don't know about. It helps us learn and it brings you into another community of multi-engine pilots. So I would highly recommend you going out there and checking out, getting your multi-engine rating. You can do it rather quickly. And one of the reasons you can do it quickly is because a lot of these courses make you study a whole bunch before you get there. Uh, That's kind of like how they do in the airline training. You read a whole, a whole lot of books. A lot of it theory but it's really really important and interestingly a lot of times you're not going to get in the airplane until after you're in a simulator and you've got everything down pat you know with all your mixture prop throttle flaps up gear up identify verify feather easy for me to say but you really need to have to know that really down pat so that you can get out there and fly and fly safely that is actually something that i think is really important in all your training is to have that knowledge so when you're out there you're not just you're not just doing this and by rote you're also understanding why it's happening so good stuff great great uh discussion about multi-engine flying and uh and becoming a proficient multi-engine pilot it starts with training right away and it continues on for the rest of your life doing lots and lots of training so uh any questions obviously you can write us contact at stuckmikeavcast.com or stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com if you're one that likes to use gmail it's really been this is a really cool discussion our picks of the week 
One of the things that uh, I think is so important is for us to learn about multi-engine aircraft. So we're going to go into our picks of the week, and I have something that that uh, kind of goes along with that. So in our picks of the week this week, I'm actually doing something different, and it's actually uh, it's a book. Uh, it, this is usually something Russ does, but uh, I actually, uh, yes, I do read, and this is the one of the few times I did. I read books with lots of pictures, and that is the Aviation Maintenance Technician Handbook Power Plant. Now, you're going to think I'm kind of a geek, an aviation geek, because I'm reading this thing, but it is absolutely cool i think i you know in general i love the new handbooks now from the fa because these really cool colored pictures full job and in describing things through not just words but also through photographs and also through all these different diagrams and all the different uh, explanations and pictures that they have is just just absolutely wonderful. But if you want to know more about engines, you want to know more about those systems that we talked about in multi-engine aircraft, I highly recommend this book. And uh, you know, regardless if you're thinking of becoming a, a mechanic or not, this is a really cool one. It's the uh, FA Handbook. You can get it online. I like ASA's versions of most of these books. These reprints, they really do a good job. So I'm going to have a link to that, uh, and you can find it on Amazon. That link there, by the way, it kind of it helps the podcast too uh, if you click on that link and purchase it there online but this is I highly recommend this for those of us who try to understand what a turbo train is technician handbook power plants the FAs uh, 8083-32A is the, is the most recent or most current one out there obviously you can download it as a PDF but I highly recommend it having the book in front of you uh, so again check that out so Russ what is your pick of the week well it's not a book <laughs> Our, our, our listeners are in shock. I understand, and I apologize for that. But actually, it's kind of funny. I, I still have been reading a lot of books, but I, I've just read some recently that I couldn't quite recommend. So they they weren't good enough to make my pick of the week, I suppose. So anyway, so but you got the book, and that's that's fine with listen to other podcasts other than the Stuck Mike Avcast. So th- this one is I've started listening to the last few months is is by Max Trescott, and it says Aviation News Talk podcast. Now, Max, uh, many of you may know from the books he's written about Garmin avionics. I mean, specifically the G one thousand. If you if you fly with the G one thousand, you're pr- you probably have read Max Trescott's book on it at some point. Uh, but he also does a podcast, this Aviation News Talk podcast. The format is a little different from ours. Uh, he usually spends about the first half of the podcast doing news topics. You know, what's in the aviation news, what's going on, uh, and so if you're interested in that, that's a good. A segment of his show, and then he'll go into you know current topics or listener mail or interviews and and that kind of real good job. And I've enjoyed it. Uh, the episodes do come out. I, I haven't been able to determine a pattern. I'm sure there is one, but it looks like every about every two weeks. But sometimes there's one, and you know after a week or so, and sometimes maybe a little less. But but regular uh, releases of these of these episodes. So uh, that's at aviationnewstalk.com or of course on any of your. Uh, podcast players or uh, Google Play and iTunes. Awesome. He does a great job, Max Trescott, on, on that uh, Aviation News Talk podcast. And uh, and you're, it's a great place to get news. You always want to hear more about aviation, so why not another podcast? But Max, is uh, he's very good. Uh, really has a background in radio, but also has uh, a very, very good background in instruction, both in this industry and another. So great, great week, even though it's uh, another podcast. Well, all right, Russ, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on this one. It's okay, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Russ. I appreciate that. So, Victoria, what is your pick of the week? 
Oh, I've been watching a lot of YouTube since I'm studying for my CFI. I like to see how other instructors instruct. So um, in my searches, I came across uh, Lou Dix Aviation Channel, and uh, he's an instructor down in Florida and has his uh, video up and um, recording with a lot of students. But specifically, the one I really liked was the Instructing the Instructor episodes he did with a CFI applicant. So it's been uh, really educational to see someone else like myself learning to fly from the trying to say the best words possible in a way to describe a certain uh, part of flight, like teaching people the land or teaching people stalls. So um, it's a very entertaining channel. He's really hilarious. So I've been enjoying uh, catching up on his older episodes and uh, using it to further my uh, possible future CFIing. Uh, possible future CFIing. We're, we're looking forward to that, Victoria. Yes, me too. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, thanks for that pick of the week. I think it's always nice to hear from other instructors, and I love listening to other instructors teach instructors because uh, we also, as students, learn about that process ourselves. Uh, and by the way, everybody's learning. So one of the things that I think is really important is is that the fact that we keep learning, and, that, and you can do that through YouTube videos, through the podcasts, and through some of these books. If you notice that these are all highly educational and entertaining. Well, we here at Stuck Mike Avcast are all about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly, and we hope you are too. If you have any comments, suggestions, any stories you want to relate to us, or something you want to answer from one of the questions from the people on this podcast, please go to stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com or click on the contact page. Well, folks, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next episode, and of course, safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.